Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next episode on our Suicide Postvention podcast series. My name is Sara Nazem, and I'm a clinical research psychologist at the Rocky Mountain Monarch, and I will be your host for today's podcast. Today's podcast is our next episode on our mini-series about how to incorporate suicide postvention practices into the workplace. We're joined by Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas for today's episode, who will be helping our listeners consider the reasons why and how to implement suicide postvention into a workplace. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sally. Uh, Let's go ahead and begin by having you provide a brief introduction of yourself. Good morning, and thank you so much for highlighting this really important and often overlooked area of postvention. Um, I am also a psychologist and had been in the field of um, mental health and and counseling and on well-being for about 16 years when my brother Carson took his life in 2004. And I, I remember really clearly being in a, in a suicide loss support group, um, sitting there, processing my grief and having this aha moment that, you know, somebody really needs to do something about this. And then I thought, oh, it's me. Uh, and that kind of catapulted me into this career of um, suicide prevention, suicide grief support. And it's been a really important way for me to make meaning out of um, – my worst tragedy uh, to help other people with the things that I've learned. And so that's led me to come into, um, well, American Association of Suicidology first, uh, and then I got the opportunity to to serve as the um, Survivor of Loss Division Chair for two terms, and now I'm on the Executive Committee. Um, I've also brought some of the um, lived experience piece from the Lost Survivors Perspective to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and the Action Alliance, and then with a number of other lost survivors and suicide attempt survivors, founded a group called United Suicide Survivors International, where we lift up the voices of lived experience for social and cultural change. So I'm coming here today with a lot of um, perspectives and a whole lot of passion um, with a specialty in workplace issues. I mean, you said it best yourself that so much experience and expertise, and I think it will really help our listeners understand all the different facets that come into play for suicide postvention. Um, so that's where I want to kind of start today's episode, just kind of leaning in on some of your background, your expertise, your own personal experience. Why is it important to consider suicide postvention in the workplace? Well, often, you know, like in most systems, people never think a certain type of tragedy like suicide is going to happen to them until it does. And then when it does, they're caught on their heels and they are reacting. um, And often what comes out of that isn't great. Uh, And workplace, um, you know, coworkers are not often thought of as fellow grievers, but they certainly are. And when we don't um, handle the postvention state well, we often um, not only cause a pretty disrupted grieving process, but we also actually increase the risk for future suicide. So it's really important for workplaces to consider suicide as one of the crises that they're preparing for, um, to think through the the nuances and some of the things that need to happen in workplace suicide postvention so that when it happens, uh, they have a plan in place. They have a plan for resources. They have a plan for how to respond. Um, that's going to be most helpful for the grieving family and the coworkers, and also to help get you know everybody back on track to the mission when and how it's appropriate. Yeah, that's a great point that I think a lot of workplaces maybe plan for other types of tragedies or crises, and I think that varies you know based on setting. Do you think it's enough to just rely on 
responses or processes that you have for other types of tragedies, or would you recommend that folks really consider how to have a specific response to suicide? Absolutely a specific response. It's a combination of not only um, kind of a a crisis that um, they might consider like violence in the workplace sometimes, um, but it's also like an, a really intense grief. So it kind of combines the need for both types of responses and because we know there are some very specific things about the aftermath of suicide that um, affect people. It's really helpful to be knowledge of some of the do's and don'ts and, and kind of th- some things to, to do. Um, but I always tell workplaces, um, you know, don't get the deer in the headlights. And, and, and don't be overwhelmed. There are some very basic fundamental things that are important. And one is to remember that that a person died and that people loved that person. And so whenever you think of what to do, uh, one of the go-to places is what, else, what do you usually do when someone dies? You know, when there's, a, when there's a grieving period for your workplace, do you, you know, pass around a sympathy card? Do you go to the memorial service? Uh, do you have any kind of honoring, you know, honoring recognition? Uh, whatever you usually do, uh, you should start there because honoring the loss is an important piece of the process. And I think sometimes in the fear and, and the anxiety and the reaction, people forget that. And they kind of just either shut the whole thing down and try to move on without talking about it or they just kind of let it fester all over the place. So that's kind of one thing that I always like to reinforce. Just don't forget that people are are grieving in the midst of this, and and that grief needs to be held in some way so that um, people can process it. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because oftentimes we'll talk about in a, in a bit how it's important to have a plan in place before death occurs. But one thing that I've seen is um, workplaces will try to use other responses or strategies which, as you beautifully described, can help, and oftentimes it's not quite enough to really handle both that crisis and that grief component, and people just kind of feel lost in the moment. So post-sentient can be very tricky. I'm not saying it's it's easy. This is why we need to have a plan in place. There's a lot of what I call tensions in post-sentient, things that, they, that feel like opposite things that we need to do, but with forethought, planning, uh, and kind of a sound process they can be accomplished. So one of the tensions that we often see is this tension between what what I'm calling the exposure effect, what we have called in the past contagion or copycat, um, this idea that if, if, we, if we publicly talk about suicide in unsafe ways, you know, romanticizing, glamorizing, talking too much about the means, et cetera, we run the risk of vulnerable people over-identifying with that narrative and being more at risk for suicide. So on one hand, we have the exposure effect, and on the other hand, we have the the real deep need for people to honor loss. And those are kind of opposite processes. So, you know, to to downplay the exposure effect, you want to kind of minimize conversations about a particular death. And when you're honoring and reminiscing and mourning, you want to talk about the person. You want to share their story and you want to, honor and highlight the things that they brought to this life. And both things are possible. Both things can happen. Um, I would say to try to hit the balance between honoring the life that was lived without, uh, without downplaying the tragedy of the death. Um, and again, that just takes some forethought and planning and uh, preparedness. Another piece is that um, on one hand, uh, you know, people are kind of stopped in their tracks for a while by a tragedy like this. 
and that's understandable. And on the other hand, there are things that provide us structure and routine and a grounding in our day, like school and routine and work, that when we can get back to those routines, it can really help people kind of feel centered and grounded. So again, those two things are possible. We just need to be thoughtful about it. Um, sometimes there's kids involved, um, you know, that's less possible usually in a workplace that they would have the responsibility for um, working with children around communication. But it's possible that they might be in a position where they are doing that. And that's hard, too. How do you talk to kids, um, especially really young kids that really don't even have a concept of death? We have some great resources for that and from the Dougie Center and some other places on coaching caring adults on how to talk to young people about suicide. And then what are the resources? A lot of times workplaces don't know that there are suicide-specific grief resources in their community and online, um, both professional grief support um, as well as uh, wonderful, wonderful peer support groups, again, in person and on the Internet. Yeah, that's terrific. And listeners that have joined us for other episodes will know that um, one resource that we have is a list of resources that are attached to each podcast. So we'll be sure to um, pick Sally's brain to highlight some of the best go-to resources that she um, would recommend. So be sure to look for that after the podcast. So I wanted to just slightly switch gears because I think you've presented a really nice rationale and background for the importance of the topic specifically in the workplace. But now I'm hoping if you could provide us with an example of a situation where postvention would be beneficial in a workplace, just to give a really nice example that helps illustrate all that you've been talking about so far. And this could be something that you've seen um, with your experience in the field, or it could be something where you're pulling from different examples um, to, to highlight what we've been talking about for our listeners. Well, I will highlight my own experience because um, I was very lucky in that when my brother died, I was working in a place, uh, and this is well before we had, you know, the manager's guide to postvention and all these other kinds of resources. They just instinctively knew um, what to do, and they did a wonderful job. So um, at the time my brother died, I was working at Regis University, which is a Jesuit Catholic uh, school in Denver, Colorado, and I had been there, again, about 16 years, and so I was pretty embedded in the community. I had lots of coworkers and friends and so forth. Um, and in the months before my brother's death, I was actually on maternity leave. So I wasn't present around the workplace, but, um, you know, still connected. I was teaching leadership development at the time. I was out, out of counseling and psychology by this point in my career, but still very much involved in a lot of different things. Um, but, I, but the point is, when my brother died, I had run out of leave. I had been on um, FMLA uh, during the months, you know, I'd taken all my sick leave, my vacation time just to stay home with my baby. And uh, they were just tremendously supportful. I, I mean, they just, they added extra days to my leave to get me through the holidays. Um, and then I remember clearly, you know, I had to go back to work. There was just no other choice. And I remember just feeling like I didn't care. Uh, part of the common trauma response is, you know, all your priorities get shuffled on their head. And so I just didn't really care about working, which was really weird for me because I love working. Um, but I had to go back to work. And so I forced myself to get up and go. And I went into my office and opened the door and my desk was just piled high with well wishes and flowers and stuffed animals. And my email box was jammed with all kinds of condolences from even people I didn't know. 
And uh, then they kind of walked me through a reintegration process that was incredibly helpful. And I'm really grateful because the Jesuits really do get grief. (laughs) So they were really um, very affirming for me and reassuring that I could take my time to come back at a pace and and in a way that was going to work for me. They helped cover some of my duties and uh, gave me some flex time so I could go to support groups and grief counseling. And it was honestly, um, you know, I would say probably the rest of that semester, probably a good five months before I felt like I could re-engage in work really at the at near, anywhere near the level that I was before his death. And they were so patient with me, and uh, that was really meaningful. And then, um, you know, then they got really involved with me when I turned the corner and started doing suicide prevention work. Uh, there was a, a team of people that were really engaged, and we did all kinds of really wonderful projects and initiatives uh, during the next several years that I was there. And one of the touching things that they still do to this day, all these years later, is that um, they have a grief honoring day at the university. It's sometime in the fall. I think it's like November or something. Um, and they still send me a card over, you know, over a decade later. They still send me a card every year saying, we're honoring your brother today. Um, so it just is, it's very heartwarming to, to know that he's being remembered in that way um, and to have them, my workplace, walk with me in my grief for so long. Um, and then the other thing I always love to share is that, um, you know, three days or so after Carson's death, uh, I'm staying at my parents' house. They, they live down the street from, from Regis. And we're just, we're a mess. Like nobody's eating, nobody's sleeping. And my supervisor, Jereen, she calls me and she says, where are you? And I said, I'm, I'm down the street. And she said, well, um, don't move. I'm coming over. Just meet me in the driveway in like five minutes. So I go out there and here comes my supervisor. And she pulls up and she gets out of the car and she hands me this big vat of chicken soup. And she says, I know you guys aren't eating just try to get a cup of this in you, you know, a couple times a day. It's got all the food groups, and it'll, it'll be really comforting for you. And um, it was just so kind. It was just so kind. And, of course, that is all we ate for the next couple of days. And so I also try to remind workplaces, like, just practical acts of kindness that you would do for other types of difficult periods that employees are having, just don't forget to do that. It matters so greatly. Say the name of the deceased. Listen to the stories of their life. Uh, It's really important for the families left behind. Yeah, I think, Sally, that example is just beautiful in highlighting so many elements of the suicide post-vention process that you spoke to last there about the practical elements, but also the clear emotional support that people were willing to have. And I think an important consideration that We've talked about in other episodes and, and part of our work of um, being there, you know, in the immediate aftermath, but also being there long term, too, that you had talked about right. walking kind of with that grief with you for so long. I think it's just a beautiful example of how a workplace, which is a place typically where many of us spend a lot of time, uh, so it's a big part of our life, can really play such an essential role in just helping someone through um, the grieving that doesn't have a timeline. Yeah, absolutely. And for those workplaces that are um, sort of new to this idea of planning for this kind of tragedy, um, there was a bunch of us that got together a number of years ago to help with a crisis guide for workplace. So it's free. It's a PDF. It's on the Internet in like a thousand places. So it's the manager's guide 
for suicide post-prevention in the workplace, 10 things you can do, uh, 10 action steps you can take. And so I would encourage you just to pull that down and take a glance at it um, because there are kind of specific things to do in the acute phase, like the first 48 hours to two weeks that a lot of times workplaces misstep and then it causes all kinds of problems later, like when they uh, don't disclose to coworkers that it's a suicide, even when everybody knows it's a suicide. Um, that's one example. Um, as well as, you know, people don't always need their EAP in the first 48 hours. They just need each other. Um, so it's okay to bring the EAP in and say, here's a resource should you need it. Just know that for most people, they don't even know what to say or what they even feel. Um, and so it's more just giving people kind of practical things to do uh, to help uh, to help move the situation forward and to help the family. And then in the short-term phase, it's really more of a phase of recovery. And so that's where a smaller group might show some some distress and might need that to briefings um, con conversation with an EAP or some personal counseling. Um, and then in the longer term, that's a reconstruction phase. And so it's really important um, there well, actually throughout the whole thing, that, uh, that the leaders are, are present and communicating in effective ways, pivoting um, around the grief to resilience and, um, and, and, re and prevention efforts. Um, and so there's a lot of tips in the manager's guide. There's flowcharts, there's a checklist, there's templates for communication, all kinds of good things to help a manager who's trying to navigate these waters um, and isn't sure what steps to take. Great. And would that be your advice or your recommendations for a workplace that's looking to set up a post-pension process to check out the manager's guide and to use that as a guiding framework to set up um, what their specific individual practice will look like? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, put it in the place where you have all your crisis documents and just remember that there are specific nuances within suicide post-pension at work that um, make, will make a huge difference. And then I would also say spread this document. Nobody, again, nobody thinks they need it until they need it, and then they don't even know that it's there. So through professional associations, especially within HR and safety and risk management, um, let people know that this document exists so that people can get it just in time. And one thing we've been highlighting in some of our work, and I think this can definitely vary by the workplace and the type of setting, but I know that some workplaces utilize um, a suicide post-pension team or like a core group of folks to really help execute the process. I'm wondering if you have any recommendations or thoughts or considerations uh, for workplaces that may want to use such a, a team. Yeah, actually, I haven't heard much about that. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I don't know many many workplaces that I work with that have a specific suicide postvention team. I know that they have kind of a, a crisis management team that may or may not be trained in postvention, but that's the first I've heard of a suicide postvention team. That's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, so usually the folks that need to be at the table for that kind of team are obviously someone from the EAP. If there is an EAP connected to the workplace, sometimes there's not. Um, but someone from the EAP that has a specialty in crisis management, you would want someone from HR, someone from your communications team. Um, I also um, have learned that it's really important to get legal counsel on board to understand why certain things have to happen the way they need to happen. A lot of times um, legal counsel has a, kind of a different agenda around things and can sometimes um, prevent what needs to happen from happening. So it's important to enroll them in the process and help them understand the bigger picture. So just for example, um, disclosing it, publicly disclosing it's a suicide 
when it's obviously a suicide and the death notification says it's a suicide and everybody knows it's a suicide, I think there's some kinds of trepidation. Um, and, a, and in the situation I was in, the family was even willing to disclose it was a suicide, but, but legal counsel was concerned. And it just caused all kinds of problems down the way. Um, I also think it's very, very important to enroll leadership. Um, leadership coming out front and center after a crisis like this uh, sets the tone for everything. So I'm just going to take a, a couple of seconds to talk about that because how how leadership uh, moves going forward, especially in the immediate aftermath, will make all the difference. So I, I try to coach leaders on having some talking points um, to get them through the first couple of days and then also some talking points down the way. And it goes something like this. The leader has to come out pretty quickly in the crisis communication and say, you know, we have been affected here. This is significant. And then I have been affected as your leader, and I am grieving with you. Um, and kind of an, an acknowledgement and compassion. And then going to some kind of core value of the of the workplace that resonates with resilience. So something like, here's what I know to be true about us. We pull together at times like this, and we look out for one another. And so as we grieve and mourn together, I am with you. Um, and we will be providing resources, something along those lines. But really having the, the leader come forward, and we call it the ACT um, acronym in the, in the guidelines, so acknowledge compassion and transition, so transition to resilience and transition eventually into, into prevention. Um, that, those kinds of talking points make a huge difference for people who are looking around, wondering what are we doing, um, how did this happen here. Um, so, so those are some things that, uh, you know, some folks to come around the table for the, the crisis uh, response. Also, um, any security folks, a lot of times there's some concern um, when there's ambiguity about the death, uh, whether or not it's a homicide or if there was some kind of toxic thing that caused the death. So security needs to also be messaging to reassure people that it's a safe environment, um, and and also what often happens too is is in the aftermath of a suicide death, dragons wake up for people. So if they had to have a previous loss by suicide or if they've lived through a suicide attempt, sometimes what you'll see is uh, people you didn't expect to want to be involved come forward and want to be involved. And uh, in my experience, uh, if they're if they're not too close to their own other tragedy, they can be remarkable remarkable um, participants in the postvention. Uh, again, at Regis, um, we had a woman in IT who really didn't have necessarily a logical connection to the postvention work, but she was so beautifully connected to the stuff that we did in the years following because she had such a passion after losing her husband. Um, similarly, the the guys in the the physical plant, you know, the the folks who were changing the locks and fixing the doors and that kind of stuff, they had lost a coworker to suicide before Carson died, and and they were just Absolutely wonderful, absolutely wonderful in coming forward and um, supporting other people bereaved and kind of being a messenger of of pulling together. It was just it was just awesome. Yeah, one thing I think we've really outlined nicely are the various ways that a workplace, starting from leadership to supervisors to just fellow employees, can support the individual and the family that have experienced the loss. I'm curious about your thoughts about what a workplace can do to take care of. Um, just the coworkers and kind of how one can come together and build a workplace sense of support, even outside of the individual that's kind of most affected. Yeah, so um, 
back uh, a couple years ago, Jeff Stolman-Rainey and I co-wrote a, a chapter on workplace postvention that went well beyond the guidelines that I just mentioned into this into this space of what do we what do we understand about the grieving worker and how can workplaces support? And one of the things that um, Jeff highlighted so beautifully in the chapter was that the process of grief is really at odds with the process of work. Work is efficient. Work is problem solving. You know, work is moving, you know, at a pace towards a goal. And grief is a very, very slowing down reflective process for most people. So one of the things to, that I would let workplaces and leaders know is that, I know especially if, if it's a first-degree family member or someone incredibly close that's lost somebody, the, the coworkers, um, you know, or, or a really close friend uh, who's a coworker, the the, co- the coworkers are going to need some time. We just give people three days often and expect them to come back full steam. And because suicide has so many layers in its grief process, uh, so many complexities, it just takes a little bit more time for people. And when we start to kind of threaten the well-being of coming back to work, it just adds so much more stress and complexity uh, that if you just gave it a little bit more time, most people will come back not only to where they were, but with a great sense of loyalty and and gratitude for a workplace that um, that was able to support them. The other thing that I would note is that it's it needs to be a collaborative process for uh, the, the the coworkers that are um, needing some accommodations, perhaps, or um, kind of you know trying to figure out the best way to reintegrate and. I would encourage the workplace not to make assumptions about what's best, so that it really needs to be a collaborative process. So some people might want a reduced work schedule or, or flexible hours, um, and some people might not. Some people might say, you know what, for eight hours a day, I get in, I go to do my accounting, I'm good at it, I have control over it, please don't take this away from me. Um, and other people might need to have some stress taken off their load. Uh, some people might want a lot of privacy. Um, they might not want to have this be the front and center thing that's going on in their work life. They just want to put some boundaries up around that, and other people might want to talk about it a great deal. Um, for a group of coworkers that is really powerfully impacted, a couple of things um, can be helpful. One is the workplace, again, needs to be aware of some of the resources for suicide-specific grief support in the community and online, like Alliance of Hope and and heartbeat groups and other forms of suicide bereavement support that exist in the community. Um, within the workplace, if especially if the coworkers cannot get to a place uh, to do a formal memorial or ritual around grief and loss with the family because maybe sometimes it's out of state or the family just has a very, very small service. Um, it can be helpful for, again, coworkers to come around, um, to come together and do some kind of ritual that acknowledges the life that was lived and, um, and celebrates that just like we would other forms of death. Uh, and then also to know that just like with schools and in families, that there there will be milestones that can be challenging. There will be anniversary dates that can be difficult. And for for this smaller group of coworkers that is profoundly impacted, again, I would I would encourage the the workplace to just have a have a conversation with them on what feels like it would be a meaningful thing to do to acknowledge that transition. 
um, and again, celebrate the life without uh, without shying away from the tragedy of the suicide, um, and just kind of just have it be for that small group uh, on those longer term anniversary and milestone transitions. Um, so those are some of the things that um, that coworkers can do, uh, at, just like um, we would do with a with a very close family member. Um, the practical assistance piece is often really helpful. Uh, so in the immediate aftermath. Another thing that can happen is that coworkers can, um, you know, provide each other rides or, um, you know, just help take some of the load off some of these practical everyday things that just are hard to do sometimes, like eat and get to places and process mail and that kind of stuff. And and really just the gesture of kindness uh, in that period means so much. So caring texts and gestures of love um, between coworkers uh, during that really intense grief process can be helpful. Yeah, I think just what you described there in terms of this theme that one size doesn't fit fit all is something that we've heard through our other episodes focusing on slightly different topics. I think that's just an important theme that cuts across suicide postvention. But these other elements of making sure that a process is collaborative, kind of checking in with what people want because it isn't a one size fits all. And again, this reminder of long-term and ongoing support is just um, really core to, I think, what we're trying to emphasize and, and put out there for the field. So so helpful. Um, I know that we've covered quite a bit, but I always like to check in um, with each of the folks that we feature on the, the podcast to see if there's any kind of other things that we haven't tapped into yet that you think it would be important for listeners to know or um, any kind of final points to summarize all the amazing things that you've uh, shared with us so far. Well, thank you. Yeah, I have one more thing that I want to share, which is um, sometimes I'll get calls within, you know, a week or two after a suicide death, and people are just reeling, like, oh, my gosh, how did we miss this? And they want to move directly into some kind of prevention, some kind of training in particular. Can you come down and do a training for our people? And, And we're talking like a week after the death. And so I understand that the kind of there's this urgency, like, oh, my gosh, we missed it. Can we all get trained right away? And so I'll always talk to folks, say, listen, um, your people are grieving right now. Let's just hold space for that. Um, And here's some things you can do. Here's some ways to support them. And just give that grief its space uh, before we jump into prevention. Because when we rush in too quickly and, you know, mostly what happens is people get some kind of gatekeeper training on board, like QPR or Safe Talk or Working Minds. Uh, it's too soon, and the survivor guilt is really strong because a lot of the messages from those uh, training programs are, "Here's all the warning signs. You better pay attention." <laughs> and then here's what you're supposed to do, and people will walk away going, "Oh my gosh, I didn't know," or "I saw that and I didn't do anything." And so if we move into prevention too soon, it can really exacerbate that survivor guilt. So I always say, let's give space for the grief. Um, and and it's not there's again no one size fits all and, and when you make that pivot to prevention but I say you know just um, you know leaders listen to your people and get a consensus are we ready to move into this space of getting trained and investing in you know communication skills and policy development and strategy and and developing our EAPs you know liaison all the all the cool stuff we'll do afterwards um, it's important so. One of my messages in closing is don't rush into prevention too soon and don't not not do prevention later. <laughs> like get to it because if your person dies 
and then you never get onto the prevention and then another person dies, uh, people can get, you know, it's perhaps that the second person didn't need to die if you didn't uh, engage in a comprehensive strategy around suicide prevention. So get to the place of prevention. Just don't rush into it in your urgency, in your reaction immediately after the death. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think it's a, a nice example of where people sometimes are coming from a really great place and, and just kind of hyper speeding through the process when we know that actually a, a solid suicide prevention process in and of itself is a form of prevention too. So just giving people the freedom and the latitude to know that. And also I think your message is, is an important one that we also want to kick in that piece of after the suicide prevention process to kind of easily transition into a suicide prevention piece as well. I have one more, one more thing. Um, so sure. in working with workplaces, yeah, I'm working with workplaces. I've also noticed that many workplaces just don't deal with grief, period. And I think that's another really important takeaway is that grief is a big part of our human experience. Work is a big part of our human experience. And we can we cannot not acknowledge that the grieving that we're doing you know, in our own personal lives and with our workmates, uh, it impacts work. And work can be a really important place where, again, we can create space for this. So some of the creative workplaces that I've been privileged to witness, they will hold a grief day, kind of like I was talking about with Regis in this day in November, where they acknowledge all the grief and all together, regardless of the with, regardless of the form of grief, regardless of whether or not it was an actual employee or a family member of employee, and I think that's really profound. Um, so we talked. There was one organization that um, you know just plants a tree for all of the people who died that year, and so they have this beautiful little forest, um, and that people can go visit their tree of the year that their person died, and um, they just do this honoring ceremony, not just specifically for a person who died by suicide, but for all the grief that the employees are carrying that year. Um, it's, there was just some really beautiful ways that people kind of pulled together um, and honored the grief as a community. And I think that's uh, an important thing for people to consider as another, um, I would even say, kind of a wellness um, initiative within a workplace is to honor grief. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, in, in many ways, our whole series and this podcast is about suicide, but I think the underlying message is just taking care of one another and just supporting employees in their well-being and in their lives outside of work, too. And I think that's a beautiful point that this is about suicide and it's about just across the board caring for anyone that's experiencing grief. Yeah. Yeah. So thank, well, thank you again you. for highlighting this really topic. It's really um, wonderful to be on this podcast, and you all do such a great job in getting uh, all kinds of messages out to a wide number of people who can really use some of the practical applications. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Callie, for lending us a bit of your time to really speak to your expertise and your experiences across the board. So thank you so much. Um, and as we mentioned to our listeners, Feel free to check out our resource section as well as our other episodes in our Suicide Postvention podcast series. But thanks again, Sally, and um, hope you have a wonderful day. Cool. And I'll just add one more thing. If people want to um, follow any uh, additional, I do have a podcast as well. Um, I've interviewed a number of folks that uh, have 
Also, interesting things to say about suicide grief. Uh, you can find that at sallyspencerthomas.com, um, as well as Twitter chats and blogs and all kinds of stuff. So I would love to see you over there. And again, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Uniting for Suicide Postvention, USPV, in collaboration with the American Association of Suicidology Clinical Survivor Task Force. USPV offers suicide postvention resources designed for family, friends, acquaintances, employees, supervisors, managers, and professional caregivers, including mental and medical health providers. USPV is funded by the Veterans Health Administration Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out our other episodes in this Suicide Postvention series.